chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. If you're using a pew Bible, that's on page 1044. And today we come to verse 47 in Luke 22. And, and really, now is when in the story as we're studying through Luke that the, the passion of the Christ begins. Here in our today's story, Jesus is arrested. And in a sense, I feel that we're entering into the, the holy precincts of the Gospel. There's a holy hush that falls on this part of the story. As from now until, I think about the end of July, we're going to be studying the, the sufferings and crucifixion of Christ. And so, I'm really coming at this section of the Gospel with, with a little bit of trepidation. I'm, I'm excited to preach the, uh, this part of the story, but it's also daunting. Because here is the suffering of our Lord. Here is His crucifixion. And, and, and so, I'm, I'm looking forward to what the Lord is going to show us as we slow down and study this story frame by frame. And today we come to the story of Jesus being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. Verse 47. Let me read the text. While He was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss Him, but Jesus asked Him, Judas? Are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And when Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, No more of this! And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders who had come for him, Am I leading a rebellion that you've come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. When I was in high school, I had this uh, friend, and his brother was in college at the time. And I remember his brother uh, told us a story. His brother was in, taking a philosophy class and he, his brother said that in this class, the philosophy professor gave him a pop quiz. And the pop quiz was one sheet of paper, essay, and it was one question, and the question was simply one word. The question was, why? <laughs> that was it. Just why? And they had to you know, answer in essay form to try to... It sounds like a typical philosophy 101 kind of uh, you know, thing that a professor would throw at people. Um, you know, his answer, by the way, was... Why not? <laughs> and apparently the professor came and said, that's a really good answer. So, uh. But you know, it's, it's a good question. It's not just a philosophical question. It's really a theological question that people ask about God a lot. You know, why? God, why is this happening? This doesn't make any sense. Um, I, I was wrestling with this question this last weekend. Uh, in, in two instances, uh, my buddy Paul Atwater, who's the pastor at North River Community Church in Pembroke, he did a funeral. You may have uh, seen about it, uh, seen it on TV, but it was a funeral for Matthew Bean, who was a soldier who was killed in Iraq, 22-year-old um, Christian kid, bright, godly, solid young man, and he's, he was killed in Iraq by a sniper. And you say, why? It's, it makes no sense why God would allow this kind of thing to happen. Uh, and then the next day, I, I did a memorial service for a member of our church whose son had passed away at age 35. And, 
it didn't make any sense. Here's a you know somebody who was a healthy, you know, happy young adult and then became ill and, and in short order passed away. And so that's what I talked about at the memorial service was why? You know, why does this happen? Why do these things take place? And and it's a question that we'll probably ask a lot in our lives. I, I know we're told sometimes we're not supposed to ask why, but I, I don't know. I ask why. <laughs> I I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm not spiritual enough yet or something, but that question comes into my mind. Why do these things happen? And things happen in our lives that raise the question. Our, our lives change like New England weather. In the morning it's sunny, and at night it's a nor'easter. That's how it is in New England. And in one day you're, you're fine and you're healthy, and then by the next week you've had some tests, and now you're going in for an operation. And it just flip-flops very quickly. You know, one day you're happily employed and the next day there's a layoff and there's some guy from HR with a pink slip and some people to escort you out the building. And you're like, whoa, you know, how, how did that happen? It just can happen so quickly. Um, and, and in those situations we wonder what God is doing. And sometimes our questioning becomes very intense and it's not just kind of a philosophical why, but it's an angry why. And sometimes people get so angry at God because of things that happen to them that they, they shut off God, they stop believing, they, I'm not going to have anything to do with organized religion because God has let them down in their mind so profoundly. Well, in this story today, we see Jesus undergoing a great trial. And what I see about Jesus is that He's not flailing, He's not angry, He's not outraged, He's calm and, and focused. Because there's another question that we as Christians have the opportunity to ask. You know, we ask why, and honestly, how often do we get the full answer to that question? <laughs> Not very often. But there's another question that I believe the Lord wants us to ask in the faces of trial and difficult situations. The other question is a one-word question that we should ask, and that question is, how? And what I mean specifically is this. Lord, how do you want me to glorify You in this situation. Lord, how am I called to walk in obedience in this crisis that I don't fully understand? How can I glorify You? Because as Christians, we have been reoriented to the glory of God. We used to be all about our own glory, but when Christ came into our life, we saw the glory of God in the face of Christ, and now our hearts are turned toward the glory of God. And of course, do we struggle to go back to our own glory? Yes, all the time. But we've been awakened to the glory of God. We've been awakened to the most important, valuable, precious, desirable thing there is in the whole universe. The highest and greatest good thing in the universe is God and God's glory. And as Christians, we've, we've been called to that. We understand now as Christians that the purpose of human life is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. This is why we exist. And so the Christian life is learning how to develop a deeper and more ravenous appetite for the glory of God and His greatness and His majesty. And, and so that's the question we need to ask. Not why. We can ask it. But remember, make sure you get to how. How can I glorify and obey you, God, in the face of this trial? And what I love about this story is here's Jesus being arrested. The passion is upon him. His sufferings are now commencing. And he's so centered because he's there simply to do the will of the Father. Let's look at the story. Verse 47. It says, while he was still speaking, a crowd came up. Okay, well, we need to stop there. Speaking about what? What was he saying? Well, you've got to go back to the text we studied 
last Sunday, if you remember, <coughs> in uh, chapter 22, verses 39 to 46. That was the story of Gethsemane where Jesus was praying. And do you remember his prayer in verse 42? Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. In verse 45, when he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Then, verse 47, while he was still speaking, a crowd came up. So as Jesus is castigating the disciples for falling asleep on the job. Why are you guys sleeping? You need to pray. And even as he's uttering the words, here comes this posse to arrest Jesus with torches and lanterns and clubs and swords. And this big brute squad is coming up and there's Jesus talking to his disciples about you've got to be ready to face the temptation. And in fact, guess what? There it is. You thought I was talking theoretically? No, no, no. The time of testing is now upon you. And you weren't ready for it. And then, of course, Judas comes. He approached Jesus to kiss him. I'm in verse 47 now. Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And so the passion of the Christ begins with a kiss. The betrayal begins with a hypocritical act of affection. And then what happens in the rest of this little segment in verses 49 to 53 is that we have the the story of Jesus' arrest. And it's interesting because it breaks up into two nice segments. The the rest of this has two parts to it. And in each of these parts, Jesus addresses a group of people. First, he's going to address the disciples, and then he's going to address the mob that's come up to arrest him. And in both instances, he rebukes them. He has a rebuke for the disciples, and then he has a rebuke for the mob. And what's also interesting is in both cases, he rebukes them for kind of the same thing. He rebukes them for carrying swords and being prepared to do violence to to accomplish their purposes. And so first he rebukes the disciples for their sword-carrying violence. Look at verse 49. When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them, who we know from the Gospel of John, was the Apostle Peter, You know, surprise, surprise, Peter, (laughs) ready, fire, aim, Peter, uh, struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. What are you guys doing with the swords? God's kingdom never advances through violence. Whenever the church throughout its history has gotten confused and taken up the sword, it's always ended poorly and has not accomplished God's purposes. And when violence comes against the church for its belief in Christ, we are called to take it the way Christ did. We are not allowed as Christians, when it comes to persecution for our faith, to fight back with violence. Because this is the path of Christ. He received the suffering. And so we're called in the same way. And so the church is not called to advance its beliefs through the sword. And he says to the guy's disciples, put your swords away. And he heals the man's ear. Like, what was Jesus doing for the last three years? Getting in rumbles? No. He was healing people. Hey guys, remember remember me doing a lot of this for the last three years? Heals the man. Come on. Don't... Take up the sword. Put down your swords. And then he turns to the crowds. And he rebukes them for taking up swords. Verse 52. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders who had come for him, Am I leading a rebellion 
that you have come with swords and clubs? What's with the weapons? Every day I was with you in the temple courts. You did not lay a hand on me, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. You know, if you guys wanted me, I was there every day. You heard what I was saying. What's the big deal? If I'm such a bad criminal, why didn't you arrest me then? And why do you think you need swords to arrest me now? Am I leading a rebellion or an insurrection? Of course not. And so he rebukes these two groups. And so what you have is you have two groups coming together in conflict. And Jesus is in the center of them. And he's poised. He's at rest. He's calm. He's, in fact, he's almost in control of the situation. Even though he's the guy being arrested, the sense you get in the story is that he's the one who's in control. He's telling everyone what to do and what they should... You know, like Who's really in charge here? And it's Jesus, because he's doing the will of the Father. He's not asking why, why. He's just saying, how? How am I going to glorify the Father and obey Him in this situation? So you have these two groups operating at a worldly level a worldly perspective on things, taking up worldly weapons. On the one hand, there's the disciples and they're thinking very reactively, which is how we tend to think. It's, it's very emotional. It's very responsive. They're, oh, they're, they're coming after Jesus. We better defend Him. And so it's a very defensive, angry, sword-swinging kind of thing. And on, on the other hand are the, the, uh, is, is the mob, the posse, and they have a very worldly approach. Their power is being threatened by Jesus. People are following Jesus, which is uh, putting their power base at risk as the leaders of Israel. And so they're coming from a very worldly perspective to protect their power. And so you have these two forces at a very worldly level with worldly weapons and worldly agendas. And then there's Jesus who is operating at a spiritual level. He's not worried about defending himself or power. He's here to do the Father's will. And so he's calm and he's resolute because it's very simple. He's here to obey the Father. And what a liberating thing it is for us as Christians to realize that in all the complexities and mysteries and unanswered questions of life, our task is really very simple. It's simply to do the will of the Father. And so that's what Jesus is there to do. He's there in that moment to accomplish His purpose and go to the cross. The cross was not an accident. It's not that Jesus was in the wrong place at the wrong time. He was right where He was supposed to be and He was walking the path laid out for Him. And we know that because Jesus has been talking about it all through the Gospel of Luke. In fact, if you go back to Luke, let's just take a walk down memory lane. For those of you who have been here the last uh, year and a half if we studied through Luke, um, just remember all the times Jesus predicted that this was going to happen. Now, for instance, let's just do a, a quick scan through this. Look back at Luke chapter 9. We'll do a quick speed read through a couple verses. Luke chapter 9, verse 22. This was way back early on in His ministry. Luke 9.22, He said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Or Luke chapter 13, verse 33. Here Jesus is talking about his journey to Jerusalem and he says in Luke 13:33, In any case, I must keep going today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. I've got to go to Jerusalem because that's what's going to happen. I'm going to die there. Or uh, Luke chapter 17, verse 25. 
Here's the text where Jesus is speaking about His second coming. But before His second coming, He must first, Luke 17, verse 25, first He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Or one more, uh, go to Luke chapter 18. Next page, verse 31. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. Specifically, He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock Him, insult Him, spit on Him, flog Him, and kill Him. And on the third day, He will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what He was talking about. So when the moment comes that Jesus has been telling them about, and He's ready to embrace in obedience the will of the Father, they still don't get it. And they're like, ah, they're taking Jesus! Get your swords! You know, Guys, this was the plan all along. And not just the plan during Jesus' lifetime. Notice again in in Luke 18, I'll just read it for you. Jesus says, We are going to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. And so in reality, all of the Old Testament was pointing forward to Jesus. And what's the message of the Old Testament? Well, it's complex and it's huge and there's lots of things. But one way you can summarize it is it's all pointing toward Jesus. Throughout the Old Testament, we see people and institutions and events that point forward to the coming of Christ. Whether it's King David, the first king after God's own heart, who fell so disastrously with his moral collapse. And so we look at David and we say, yes, there needs to be a king after God's own heart, but one who's not going to fail in the time of testing. And it just yearns for a fulfillment in Christ. Or look at the sacrificial system in the Old Testament where lambs were killed and blood was shed and the Passover lamb was sacrificed. And it was all a prefigurement of Christ who would die as our sacrifice for sins on the cross. Or when Abraham was going to sacrifice his son Isaac, what a picture of the sacrifice that God the Father would make of His own son. And even then, before Abraham sacrificed his son, God said, Stop! And there was a ram in the bush. There was a substitute. And even there we see the prefigurements of Christ in the Old Testament. Or go back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve blew it in the garden. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane succeeds the test. And even after Adam and Eve fell, when you'd think God would be done with them, instead He gives this promise. He gives a promise to Adam and then a word to Eve and finally He pronounces judgment on the serpent, Satan. And what He says to Satan, He says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers and you will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. That's interesting. So there in Genesis 3, there's a prophecy that someday an offspring of the woman would be struck or wounded by Satan, but then he would in turn destroy Satan's power and crush his head. And so even there, the Gospel is being spoken and hinted at. And so from Genesis, from the very get-go, all the way till the time of Christ, this plan has been in place for Jesus to go to the cross. And you know, the plan was even in place before Genesis. You're like, what's before Genesis? (laughs) Well, God was before Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But before the universe was created, there was God. And you say, well, who made God? Well, nobody made God. I mean, He's God. That's the point. He's a divine. He's He's eternal. He's the unmoved mover. He's the first cause. He's the source of all things. Well, wasn't He bored? You know, what did God do all that, that time? 
No, he's not poor. For all eternity past, in all eternity future, God is doing the greatest thing ever. He is savoring and delighting in and glorifying His own majesty and glory. God is the greatest good. He is the the highest and most wonderful thing. And so the most wonderful thing you can do is to glorify and enjoy the most wonderful thing, which for God happens to be Himself. And so for all eternity past, God has been happy. God doesn't get bored. He doesn't get sad. He doesn't get depressed. He doesn't get frustrated. God is, is delighting in God's self through all eternity, savoring the greatest thing, which is Himself. And, and so that, that glory and joy of God's self, just like, like a fountain spilling over into creation so that His glory could be expressed even more. God didn't make the universe because He was empty and missing something. God made the universe because He was full and and just overflowing with His glory. And there before the world began, when it it was all in in God's mind, as, as Spurgeon said, when the universe was in the mind of God like a forest was in an acorn, and as God had it in His mind, He foreknew and foreordained all things. And He foreordained and foreknew everything, even our own moral collapse. And He also, between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, agreed upon a plan to sacrifice Himself. And so for all eternity, this has been the plan of God. And in the fullness of time, Jesus entered in fulfillment of the Old Testament. So when He comes to this moment, where he's standing there in the Garden of Gethsemane about to be arrested, he is simply fulfilling the plan that has been laid out for all eternity. But the disciples don't get it, do they? They're just freaking out. they got their swords out and they're just swinging away at anyone who gets in their way. <laughs> they even cut off some poor guy's ear. And, and they don't understand and we don't understand either. We, we lose sight of God's plan and purposes. And we're like the disciples. You know, that's what I love about the disciples. I read about the disciples. I'm like, yeah, that's me. <laughs> I wish I could look at Jesus and say, oh yeah, that's me. No, it's the disciples. <laughs> because trials come upon us and difficulties come upon us. And we react in a very worldly superficial, immediate focus. We don't have the eternal perspective. We're not focused on how to do the will of the Father. We're just freaking out about what's happening to us. And so, you know, your kid gets sick. Or uh, your parents come to you and, they, and it's your junior year and they say, you know, I know it's the middle of the junior year and, and you've always lived here in Massachusetts and these are all your friends, but, you know, Dad just got a new job and he's being re- relocated to, you know, Kansas. And so... We're going to have to leave. <laughs> Why is this happening? Um, somebody at work or somebody at church, you get in a conflict with them and there's slander and, and you feel like you can't even walk into the workplace because of the conflict that's taking place. And we say, why is this happening? Uh, you find out that you're struggling with infertility or you're single and you really wish you were married. Or oh, you're married and you really wish you were single. Uh, <laughs> Or whatever it is you're wrestling with. Whatever it is you're wrestling with. And, and we come at God and we take, and, and these things happen and we just react. We pull out the sword. We start making phone calls. We start sending out emails. And we hire a lawyer. And we're going to fight. And we're going to do battle with whatever it is that's threatening us. 
and, and we start swinging the sword. At it's, it's like, you know, when, a bee, when you get bees around you, you know, you're supposed to stay calm, right? And instead, we go like, ah! <laughs> and you can, you can learn a lot from bees if you stop and watch them. They're really amazing creatures. You know, study bees if you don't believe in the existence of God. I mean, what an incredible creature, the way they communicate with each other. They're intricately and wonderfully made. But you can't notice that about a bee if you're just going, ah! You have to stay calm to see the purpose of God in these things. And, and so we react and we swing the sword. And sometimes we even swing the sword at heaven. And we say, all right, God, where are you? Why is this happening? Why aren't you helping me in this battle? And the problem is, we're in the wrong battle. That's not the battle. The chief battle you and I are in is not against the outward circumstances in our life. It's a battle, and there are issues, and I'm not saying we shouldn't pray for those things. Of course we should, and we do. But that is the secondary battle. The primary battle takes place in here. It's, will I obey the will of God and glorify God in this situation or not? That's the most important question. And the rest is simply the circumstances that give rise to the most important question. You see, Jesus is so calm when the crowd comes up to arrest Him because He already fought the battle. The battle was done as far as He was concerned. The battle was what we studied last week. The battle was the battle of prayer. Look back at chapter 22, verse 42. Here's the battle. Father, verse 42, he's praying, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Lord, I don't want to go through this. I don't like it. These circumstances are difficult. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. That is the spiritual battle. To come to the place of saying, not my will, not my agenda, not my plans, not even my comfort, but your will be done. That's the battle, isn't it? And it's won through prayer. The way you get there is through prayer. That's the only way. You just have to come to God and be very honest and say, I'm miserable, I'm angry, I don't know why these things are happening, but I want to glorify you in the midst of this garbage that I'm facing. And so God... Show me how to do that in a way that honors and glorifies you. And that is, you can't just say that glibly. It's not, it's not an easy thing to just say, okay, I'll, I'll say thy will be done. You have to get there through prayer. It takes a struggle. Notice how Jesus struggled, verse 44. In anguish, he prayed more earnestly. The sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. This is a battle he was in. It was a spiritual battle. So that when the troops came and the outward conflict was upon him, he was ready. He was ready to face it. Contrast with the disciples. (laughs) When the conflict comes, they're flipping out. But where were they during the real battle? Asleep. And I don't know, when I get woken up in the middle of my sleep, I'll tell you what, I can be a real ugly person. You know, wake me up in the middle of the night, I don't know why, I'm just nasty. And I'm ticked off and I don't even know why. I I just don't like being woken up in my sleep. And some of us are asleep. We're spiritually asleep. We're not really walking with the Lord. And something's going to come into your life and you're going to wake up and just be nasty. (laughs) Because you haven't been preparing yourself by walking closely with the Lord in prayer and cultivating a constant state of mind and attitude that says, 
Not my will, but yours be done. And when you're in that state of mind and the trials come, you're ready for them and you're ready to fall back in prayer and say, all right, Lord, I don't understand this. It hurts. I'm actually a little bit irritated, but you know what? Thy will be done. And Lord, you're going to guide me through this. And I want to honor and glorify you in how I respond to this situation. So let let me just ask you, uh, application time. What would you say is the biggest challenge or crisis or frustration you're facing right now? And maybe some of you are thinking, can I have like four? Like, pick, right, pick the big one, whatever. Whatever it is. All right, the thing that's keeping you up, the thing that you keep talking about with your friends and they're sick of hearing about it from you, the thing that, you know, that's got you worried and, and whenever you have a spare moment in the car, you're thinking about this thing over and over again. You have that, that thing that you're facing. All right, let's go back to the basics. Step one, acknowledge the sovereignty of God. Realize that whatever is happening is from God's hand. He loves you. He has a purpose. Well, if he is in charge, why is this happening? I don't know. But acknowledge the sovereignty of God. That's the starting place. You know, this was a really challenging week for our church staff as, uh, as Rich uh, resigned. And, and you know, I, I, I think he's made the right choice and I support him and we love him and there's no animosity. But it's still just really sad and draining and, you know, any time that happens. And this is, it was an exhausting week. Everyone around the office was just like, whoa, <laughs> exhausted and wiped out. But we had a time of prayer, and it was so great because we got together and prayed, and the thing that everyone kept praying about was we were just resting in the sovereignty of God. You have to fall back as a Christian and say, God is in charge, even of this, whatever it is that you're facing. He's sovereign. And then once you acknowledge his sovereignty and rest in his total control over all things, mysterious as it may be, the next step is then to say, all right, Lord, show me how I can glorify you by the way I respond. And that's going to look different in each situation. Maybe the way you're called to glorify God right now is is you have to forgive somebody. Or maybe there's a, a hard thing you have to say. You have to speak the truth. You have to take a step and say something. Or maybe you need to shut up <laughs> and back off and trust God. Or maybe there's um, uh, some, something God wants you to do with your resources or your money. Or, or maybe there's a mission that He wants you to undertake. Or some new challenge. Or maybe there's something you need to cut out of your life. Or whatever it is. How are you going to glorify God in the situation you're in? And, and that's just not something we guess at. I mean, you have to go back to God's Word. And find out what he wants us to do. It's not just, well, I feel God wants me to do this. You'll test it by the word of God. And then, and then walk in obedience. And what's interesting is, is that if you submit to the sovereignty of God and you say, God, I want to glorify you in this trial, what happens a lot of times is God will start to show you some of the whys. Which is kind of funny. Once you start surrendering your life to God and letting him be... Uh, let the Holy Spirit work through you, you'll start to see some of the whys about why this is happening. And usually you'll see how God's using the situation to be a blessing to others. And maybe not right away. Sometimes it's years later. You look back and you go, oh, I didn't even realize this and this and this came out of that that I went through and I didn't know why it was happening, but look at the good. 
and, and, I, no one, and someone walks up to you and says, you know, and they tell you a story and you realize how God was using it to bless others. Just as Christ's suffering was the uh, conduit through which God achieved our ultimate redemption, so God uses the suffering of Christians redemptively. And, and as we go through that suffering, if we go through with our hearts fixed on Christ, we will often see some of the whys down the road answered. Not all of them, but some of them. And we'll see how he uses that in our lives. And so that's the calling we have as Christians, is to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, to get past the why and focus on how to glorify God in every situation, because it's all about his glory. Of course, the problem is we don't do that, right? (laughs) We fail. That's why I said I, I so resonate with the disciples here. Because even as a Christian, even preaching this sermon to you, I know I'm going to fail. I know a challenge is going to come into my life, and rather than asking how can I glorify you, God, I'm going to, I'm going to blow it. Even in our finest moments, it's always tainted in some way. We are all have fallen short of the glory of God. None of us here loves God the way we should. None of us has followed God's will the way we should. I was thinking about this uh, uh, yesterday. I went to the Red Sox game, and uh, I got a spiritual analogy at the Red Sox game, like a moment of like, <gasps> it, was, it was when uh, Barry Bonds got up to bat. <laughs> and he gets up, and everyone's, you know, Boo! and people behind me are like, I feel like something people behind me are like, you need, you know, to calm down, because they're like, get off the field, and flipping out. I'm like, jeez. But, you know, and for those of you who you know, don't know, Barry Bonds is very close to breaking the all-time home run record. He's about ready to break Hank and Aaron's record of most home runs in a lifetime. But the controversy is that there are strong suspicions that for a good portion of his career, he was on steroids. And so that the reason he got that record is because he was juiced up and, you know, wasn't natural and it wasn't fair and all that stuff. So, so what happens is, it's, I, d- I didn't understand this at first, but I finally figured it out. People, the, the sign people would do whenever they come up to bat is they would hold up an asterisk, you know, like on your computer keyboard. Like they have foam ones. I don't know, someone made them and they put them on their hands and they hold up an asterisk. People up in the, the upper decks would like roll out these flags with an asterisk painted on it. And the idea is, you know, New home run record, asterisk, you know, see footnote, was on steroids. <laughs> that's, that's the whole point behind it. And that's when I had my spiritual enlightenment. I was like, I'm like, every good deed I've ever done has an asterisk. <laughs> Even when I get something right, you know, asterisk, Jeremy was really arrogantly proud about it, you know. <laughs> Yes, I did this good deed, asterisk. I was motivated by selfish desires to accomplish this good deed. You know? And so, so all of our lives have asterisks by them. Even our good moments. even our th- we, we fall short of the glory of God. You know, here's Peter defending Jesus. You know, asterisk. He wasn't listening. He wasn't praying. He didn't get it. Um, and so when I look at this story, I realize that Jesus is not just my example in the story of how I should be. He's also my Savior. Because I need more than an example. I need a Savior. If I just need an example, I'd be fine. You didn't have to go to the cross. I need someone not just to show me the right way to live, but to forgive me of my sins and to actually save me from my sins. See, Jesus is the only man who ever lived who's got no asterisks. He was tempted like us in every way, yet without sin. He never failed. He never had the wrong motivations. He was perfectly in harmony with the will of the Father wherever He went. 
He never broke formation. Always doing the will of the Father, even to the cross. Always with his heart set on the glory of God. Always with a heart filled up with love. And, and he did that because he was the Son of God. He was the perfect man, tempted like us, yet without sin. And even now he goes to the cross. And so it's because Jesus went to the cross that we can be saved and forgiven. That's the message of Christianity, is that we need a Savior, not just an example. And so there on the cross, we have the obedience of Jesus that takes the place of my failed obedience. And then on the cross, we have the suffering of Jesus, which pays for my disobedience. Uh, Theologians have a term for this. You can learn a little theology term and you can throw it around at work tomorrow. But uh, they call it the active obedience of Christ and the passive obedience of Christ. And by active obedience, what theologians mean is that Jesus actively fulfilled all of the law of God. And by passive obedience, they mean that he took upon himself the consequences for, that we have for failing to keep the law of God. So he kept the law in our place, and then he was crucified for how we haven't kept the law in our place. So Jesus is not just an example of righteousness. Jesus is our righteousness. He is my righteousness. And so I stand before God as a righteous man because I'm covered with Christ, not because of any track record I have. And it's as Christ covers me and His Holy Spirit fills me that we are now empowered, filled by the Holy Spirit, to start learning how to walk a life of obedience so that our real lives match our status in Christ. And so I'll just end with this question for you. And the question is, have you come to the place in your life where you've turned your life over to Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And we talked about the mob of disciples. What about that other mob? They were angry at Jesus. Why? Because Jesus was threatening to them. Jesus was the Lord and they were protecting their little turf. And so the mob came to arrest Him and try to get rid of Him. And and that's maybe where you're at. It's like I have my life, I have what I like to do, I have my friends and I don't want anyone telling me how to live. And here's Jesus. He comes into your life and He says, lay down your arms. Follow Me. Jesus is willing to grant amnesty and total forgiveness to anybody who will lay down their arms and follow Him. If you just come to Him in faith right now and say, Lord, I want to stop fighting. I'm flailing around. I don't know why these things are happening. But Lord, I want to stop the fight and I want to walk with You and be saved by You. Jesus, I want You to be my righteousness. The church could not save you. The sacraments of the church cannot save you. Good deeds cannot save you. Praying to the saints will not save you. Listening to my sermons for a year will not save you. Giving money to the poor will not save you. Because it all has an asterisk. You need the righteousness that Jesus can give. The righteousness that comes from outside of you as a gift accepted by faith alone. And so have you come to the place in your life where you have laid down your sword and you said, I'm going to follow you, Christ, and I want the righteousness and forgiveness. And I want to know what it's like to live life not all by myself, fending for myself. I want to know what it's like to live a life in harmony and in fellowship with my Maker, which is the whole point of Christianity, to reconnect us to God through Jesus. Have you ever embraced Christ as your Savior? Let's take a minute to pray. and Maybe that's where your heart is at. You would like to turn to Jesus. And I just, I'm just going to pray. And if, 
if that's something that you're yearning for, would you just pray along with me in your own heart? And just say, Jesus, I confess that I am a sinner. My whole life has a big asterisk by it. And I know that my sin separates me from You. But Lord Jesus, I believe that You are the Son of God and the Savior. And I ask that You would forgive me my sins. Lord Jesus, teach me to follow You. And Lord, I just pray for all of us here that we would surrender our lives to You. And I pray for anyone who's going through a fierce trial right now, that You would not only support them and give them relief, but more importantly, that You would help them to focus on glorifying You in the midst of the trial. Not to focus on the why, but the how. And so, Lord, be at work in our church. Make us a godly people who trust You, whether the sun is shining or whether it's dark and cloudy in our lives. We just pray that we would walk in obedience. And we ask all this in Your name, Jesus. Amen. Our closing hymn is found on the back of your bulletin. If you'd like to sing along the hymnal, you can find it in hymn uh, 603. Though I don't know if we're singing all the verses, so...